0: Two objects together and isolated from all others? Do you see their gravity drawing them apart? Bland though it may seem, it is inversions like this that sit under all humor and all horror, holding them up from below and defining the extremes of our experience. So the story goes. This is H.P. Knightley, presenting Episode 4 of Nighttime Stories. Tonight we continue with "Afterward" by American author Edith Wharton. In the intervening time since episode 3, I've been reading A Backward Glance, her autobiography, and I may say it's one of the better biographies I've read in my lifetime. I like stories that sit in some strange middle place between memoir and linear biography. Without saying much more, I suspect I'll be able to recommend it, once it's finished and it's time I put it down. If you haven't listened yet to episode 3, the first part of this story, afterward, may I suggest you go back and have a listen. At that, the remainder may not have the same feel without the prior half. Without further comment, Part Two of Afterward, by Edith Wharton, first published 1910, Century Magazine. Chapter Three. One of the strangest things she was afterward to recall out of all the next day's incredible strangeness was the sudden and complete recovery of her sense of security. It was in the air when she woke in her low-ceiling, dusky room. It accompanied her downstairs to the breakfast table, flashed out at her from the fire, and reduplicated itself brightly from the flanks of the urn and the sturdy flutings of the Georgian teapot. It was as if, in some roundabout way, all her diffused apprehensions of the previous day, with their moment of sharp concentration about the newspaper article as if this dim questioning of the future, and startled return upon the past, had between them liquidated the arrears of some haunting moral obligation. If she had indeed been careless of her husband's affairs, it was, her new state seemed to prove, because her faith in him instinctively justified such carelessness, and his right to her faith had overwhelmingly affirmed itself in the very face of menace and suspicion. She had never seen him more untroubled, more naturally and unconsciously in possession of himself, than after the cross-examination to which she had subjected him. It was almost as if he had been aware of her lurking doubts, and had wanted the air cleared as much as she did. It was as clear, thank heaven, as the bright outer light that surprised her almost with a touch of summer when she issued from the house for her daily round of the gardens. She had left Boyne at his desk, indulging herself as she passed the library door by a last peep at his quiet face, where he bent, pipe in his mouth, above his papers, and now she had her own morning's task to perform. The task involved on such charmed winter days almost as much delighted loitering about the different quarters of her domain, as if spring were already at work on shrubs and borders. There was such an exhaustible possibility still before her, such opportunities to bring out the latent graces of the old place, that a single irreverent touch of alteration, that the winter months were all too short to plan what spring and autumn executed, and a recovered sense of safety gave, on this particular morning, a peculiar zest to her progress through the sweet, still place. She went first to the kitchen garden, where she espaliered pear trees, drew complicated patterns on the walls, and pigeons were fluttering and preening about the silvery-slated roof of their cot. There was something wrong about the piping of the hot house, and she was expecting an authority from Dorchester, who was to drive out between trains and make a diagnosis of the boiler, when she dipped into the damp heat of the greenhouses, among the spiced scents of waxy pinks and reds of old-fashioned exotics, even the flora of Ling was on the note. She learned that the great man had not arrived, and the day being too rare to waste in an artificial atmosphere, she came out again and paced slowly along the springy turf of the bowling green to the gardens behind the house. At their farther end rose a grass terrace, commanding over the fish pond and the yew hedges, a view of the long house front with its twisted chimney stacks and the blue shadows of its roof angles, all drenched in the pale gold moisture of the air. Seen thus, across the level tracery of the yews, under this fused, mild light, its center, from its open windows and hospitably smoky chimneys, the look of some warm human presence, of a mind slowly ripened on a sunny wall of experience. She had never before had so deep a sense of her intimacy with it, such a conviction that its secrets were all beneficent, kept, as they said to children, for one's good, so complete a trust in its power to gather up her life and Ned's into the harmonious pattern of the long, long story it sat there weaving in the sun. She heard steps behind her and turned, expecting to see the gardener, accompanied by the engineer from Dorchester, but one figure was in sight, that of a youngish, slightly built man, who, for reasons she could not on the spot have specified, did not remotely resemble her preconceived notion of an authority on hothouse boilers. The newcomer, on seeing her, lifted his hat, paused with the air of a gentleman, perhaps a traveler, desirous of having it immediately known that his intrusion is involuntary. The local fame of Ling occasionally attracted the more intelligent sightseer, and Mary half expected to see the stranger dissemble a camera, or justify his presence by producing it but he made no gesture of any sort, and after a moment she asked, in a tone responding to the courteous deprecation of his attitude, "'Is there anyone you wish to see?' "'I came to see Mr. Boyne,' he replied. His intonation, rather than his accent, was faintly American, and Mary, at the familiar note, looked at him more closely. The brim of his soft-felt hat cast a shade on his face, which, thus obscured, wore to her short-sighted gaze a look of seriousness.' as of a person arriving on business, and civilly but firmly aware of his rights. Past experience had made Mary equally sensible to such claims, but she was jealous of her husband's morning hours, and doubtful of his having given anyone the right to entreat on them. Have you an appointment with Mr. Boyne? she asked. He hesitated, as if unprepared for the question. Not exactly an appointment, he replied. Then I'm afraid, this being working time, that he can't receive you now. "'Will you give me a message, or come back later?' The visitor, again lifting his hat, briefly replied that he would come back later, and walked away, as if to regain the front of the house. As his figure receded down the walk between the yew hedges, Mary saw him pause and look up an instant at the peaceful house front, bathed in faint winter sunshine, and it struck her, with a tardy touch of compunction, that it would have been more humane to ask if he had come from a distance." and to offer, in that case, to inquire if her husband could receive him. But as the thought occurred to her, he passed out of sight behind a pyramidal yew, and at the same moment her attention was distracted by the approach of the gardener, attended by the bearded, pepper-and-salt figure of the boiler maker from Dorchester. The encounter with this authority led to such far-reaching issues that they resulted in his finding an expedient to ignore his train, and beguiled Mary into spending the remainder of the morning in absorbed confabulation among the greenhouses. She was startled to find, when the colloquy ended, that it was nearly luncheon time, and she half expected, as she hurried back to the house, to see her husband coming out to meet her. But she found no one in the court but an undergardener raking the gravel, and the hall, when she entered it, was so silent that she guessed Boyne to be still at work behind the closed door of the library. Not wishing to disturb him, she turned into the drawing-room, and there, at her writing-table, lost herself in renewed calculations of the outlay to which the morning's conference had committed her. The knowledge that she could permit herself such follies had not yet lost its novelty. And somehow, in contrast to the vague apprehensions of the previous days, it now seemed an element of her recovered security, of the sense that, as Ned had said, things in general had never been righter. She was still luxuriating in a lavish play of figures when the parlor-maid from the threshold roused her with a dubiously worded inquiry as to the expediency of serving luncheon. It was one of their jokes that Trimmel announced luncheon as if she were divulging a state secret, and Mary, intent upon her papers, merely murmured an absent minded assent. She felt Trimmel wavering expressively on the threshold, as if in rebuke of such off hand acquiescence. Then a retreating step sounded down the passage, and Mary, pushing away her papers, crossed the hall and went to the library door. It was still closed, and she wavered in her turn. Disliking to disturb her husband, yet anxious that he should not exceed his normal measure of work. As she stood there balancing her impulses, the esoteric Trimmel returned with the announcement of luncheon, and Mary, thus impelled, opened the door and went into the library. Boyne was not at his desk, and she peered about her, expecting to discover him at the bookshelves, somewhere down the length of the room. But her call brought no response, and gradually it became clear to her that he was not in the library. She turned back to the parlor-maid. "'Mr. Boyne must be upstairs. Please tell him that luncheon is ready.' The parlor-maid appeared to hesitate between the obvious duty of obeying orders and an equally obvious conviction of the foolishness of the injunction laid upon her. The struggle resulted in her saying doubtfully, "'If you please, madam. Mr. Boyne's not upstairs.' "'Not in his room. Are you sure?' "'I'm sure, madam.' Mary consulted the clock. "'Where is he, then?' "'He's gone out,' Trimble announced, "'with the superior air of one who has respectfully waited "'for the question that a well-ordered mind would have first propounded.' "'Mary's previous conjecture had been right, then. "'Boyne must have gone to the gardens to meet her, "'and since she had missed him, "'it was clear that he had taken the shorter way by the south door, "'instead of going round to the court. "'She crossed the hall to the glass portal opening directly on the yew garden "'but the parlor maid, after another moment of inner conflict,' "'decided to bring out recklessly. "'Please, madam. Mr... Mr. Boyne didn't go that way.' "'Mary turned back. "'Where did he go, then, and when?' "'He went out of the front door, up the drive, madam.' "'It was a matter of principle with Trimmel, "'never to answer more than one question at a time. "'Up the drive, at this hour?' "'Mary went to the door herself and glanced across the court "'through the long tunnel of bare limes, "'but its perspective was as empty as when she had scanned it "'on entering the house.' "'Did Mr. Boyne leave no message?' she asked. Trimmel seemed to surrender herself to a last struggle with the forces of chaos. "'No, madam. He just went out with the gentleman.' "'The gentleman? What gentleman?' Mary wheeled about, as if to front this new factor. "'The gentleman who called, madam,' said Trimmel, resignedly. "'When did a gentleman call? Do explain yourself, Trimmel.' "'Only the fact that Mary was very hungry.' And that she wanted to consult her husband about the greenhouses, would have caused her to lay so unusual an injunction on her attendant. And even now she was detached enough to note in Trimmel's eye the dawning defiance of the respectful subordinate who has been pressed too hard. "'I couldn't exactly say the hour, madam, because I didn't let the gentleman in,' she replied, with the air of magnanimously ignoring the irregularity of her mistress's course. "'You didn't let him in?' "'No, madam, when the bell rang, I was dressing, and Agnes—' "'Go and ask Agnes, then,' Mary interjected. "'Trimmel still wore her look of patient magnanimity. "'Agnes would not know, madam, for she had unfortunately burnt her hand "'in trying the wick of the new lamp from town. "'Trimmel, as Mary was aware, had always been opposed to the new lamp. "'And so Mrs. Dockett sent the kitchen maid instead. "'Mary looked again at the clock. "'It's after two. Go and ask the kitchen-maid if Mr. Boyne left any word. She went into luncheon without waiting, and Trimmel presently brought her there the kitchen-maid's statement that the gentleman had called about one o'clock, that Mr. Boyne had gone out with him without leaving any message. The kitchen-maid did not even know the caller's name, for he had written it on a slip of paper, which he had folded and handed to her, with the injunction to deliver it at once to Mr. Boyne. Mary finished her luncheon, still wondering, and when it was over, and Trimmel had brought the coffee to the drawing-room, her wonder had deepened to a first faint tinge of disquietude. It was unlike Boyne to absent himself without explanation, at so unwanted an hour, and the difficulty of identifying the visitor whose summons he had apparently obeyed made his disappearance the more unaccountable. Mary Boyne's experience as the wife of a busy engineer, subject to sudden calls and compelled to keep irregular hours— had trained her to the philosophic acceptance of surprises. But since Boyne's withdrawal from business, he had adopted a Benedictine regularity of life. As if to make up for the dispersed and agitated years, with their stand-up lunches and dinners rattled down to the joltings of the dining car, he cultivated the last refinements of punctuality and monotony, discouraging his wife's fancy for the unexpected, and declaring that to a delicate taste there were infinite gradations of pleasure in the fixed recurrences of habit. Still, since no life can completely defend itself from the unforeseen, it was evident that all Boyne's precautions would sooner or later prove unavailable, and Mary concluded that he had cut short a tiresome visit by walking with his caller to the station, or at least accompanying him for part of the way. This conclusion relieved her from farther preoccupation, and she went out herself to take up her conference with the gardener. Then she walked to the village post office, a mile or so away, "'and when she turned toward home, the early twilight was setting in. "'She had taken a footpath across the downs, "'and as Boyne, meanwhile, had probably returned from the station by the high road. "'There was little likelihood of their meeting on the way. "'She felt sure, however, of his having reached the house before her, "'so sure that when she entered it herself, "'without even pausing to acquire of Trimmel, "'she made directly for the library. "'But the library was still empty, "'and with an unwanted precision of visual memory.' She immediately observed that the papers on her husband's desk lay precisely as they had lain when she had gone in to call him to luncheon. Then of a sudden she was seized by a vague dread of the unknown. She had closed the door behind her on entering, and as she stood alone in the long, silent, shadowy room, her dread seemed to take shape and sound, to be there audibly breathing and lurking among the shadows. Her short-sighted eyes strained through them, half-discerning an actual presence, "'something aloof that watched and knew, "'and in the recoil from that intangible propinquity "'she threw herself suddenly on the bell-rope "'and gave it a desperate pull. "'The long, quavering summons brought Trimmel "'in precipitately with the lamp, "'and Mary breathed again at this sobering reappearance of the usual. "'You may bring tea if Mr. Boyne is in,' she said to justify her ring. "'Very well, madam. "'But Mr. Boyne is not in.' "'said Trimmel, putting down the lamp. "'Not in? You mean he's come back and gone out again? "'No, madam, he's never been back.' "'The dread stirred again, and Mary knew that now it had her fast. "'Not since he went out with the gentleman. "'Not since he went out with the gentleman. "'But who was the gentleman?' Mary gasped out, "'the sharp note of someone trying to be heard "'through a confusion of meaningless noises.' That I couldn't say, madam, Trimmel, standing there by the lamp, seemed suddenly to grow less round and rosy, as though eclipsed by the same creeping shade of apprehension. But the kitchen-maid knows. Wasn't it the kitchen-maid who let him in? She doesn't know either, madam, for he wrote his name on a folded paper. Mary, through her agitation, was aware that they were both designating the unknown visitor by a vague pronoun instead of the conventional formula which, till then, had kept their illusions within the bounds of custom. And at the same moment her mind caught at the suggestion of the folded paper. But he must have a name. Where is the paper? She moved to the desk and began to turn over the scattered documents that littered it. The first that caught her eye was an unfinished letter in her husband's hand, with his pen lying across it, as though dropped there at a sudden summons. My dear Parvis... "'Who was Parvis? "'I have just received your letter announcing Elwell's death, "'and while I suppose there is now no further risk of trouble, "'it might be safer.' "'She tossed the sheet aside and continued her search, "'but no folded paper was discoverable among the letters "'and pages of manuscript which had been swept together in a promiscuous heap "'as if by a hurried or a startled gesture. "'But the kitchen-maid saw him. "'Send her here,' she commanded.' wondering at her dullness in not thinking sooner of so simple a solution. Trimmel, at the behest, vanished in a flash, as if thankful to be out of the room, and when she reappeared conducting the agitated underline, Mary had regained her self-possession, and had her questions pat. The gentleman was a stranger, yes, that she understood. But what did he said, and above all, what did he look like? The first question was easily enough answered for the disconcerting reason that he had said so little, and merely asked for Mr. Boyne, and, scribbling something on a bit of paper, had requested that it should at once be carried into him. Then you don't know what he wrote? You're not sure it was his name? The kitchen-maid was not sure, but supposed it was, since he had written it in answer to her inquiry as to whom she should announce. And when you carried the paper into Mr. Boyne, what did he say? The kitchen-maid did not think that Mr. Boyne had said anything, but she could not be sure, for just as she had handed him the paper, and he was opening it, she had become aware that the visitor had followed her into the library, and she had slipped out, leaving the two gentlemen together. Then, if you left them in the library, how do you know that they went out of the house? This question plunged the witness into momentary inarticulateness, from which she was rescued by Trimmell, who, by means of ingenious circumlocutions, elicited the statement that before she could cross the hall to the back passage, she had heard the gentleman behind her, and had seen them go out the front door together. Then if you saw the gentleman twice, you must be able to tell me what he looked like. But with this final challenge to her powers of expression, it became clear that the limit of the kitchen maid's endurance had been reached. The obligation of going to the front door to show in a visitor was in itself so subversive of the fundamental disarray and she could only stammer out after various panning efforts at evocation. His hat, Mum, was different-like, as you might say. Different? How different? Mary flashed out at her, her own mind in the same instant leaping back to an image, left on it that morning, but temporarily lost under layers of subsequent impressions. His hat had a wide brim, you mean? His face was pale, a youngish face? Mary pressed her with a white-lipped intensity of interrogation. But if the kitchen-maid found any adequate answer to this challenge, it was swept away for her listener down the rushing current of her own convictions. The stranger, the stranger in the garden. Why had Mary not thought of him before? She needed no one now to tell her that it was he who had called for her husband, and gone away with him. But who was he? And why had Boyne obeyed his call? Chapter 4 It leaped out at her suddenly like a grin out of the dark, that they had often called England, so little, such a confoundedly hard place to get lost in. A confoundedly hard place to get lost in. That had been her husband's phrase, and now, with the whole machinery of official investigation sweeping its flashlights from shore to shore and across the dividing straits, now with Boyne's name blazing from the walls of every town and village, his portrait How that wrung her, hawked up and down the country, like the image of a hunted criminal. Now the little compact, populous island, so policed, surveyed, and administered, revealed itself as a sphinx-like guardian of abysmal mysteries, staring back into his wife's anguished eyes, as if with the malicious joy of knowing something they would never know. In the fortnight since Boyne's disappearance, there had been no word of him, no trace of his movements. Even the usual misleading reports that raise expectancy in tortured bosoms had been few and fleeting. No one but the bewildered kitchen-maid had seen him leave the house, and no one else had seen the gentleman who accompanied him. All inquiries in the neighborhood failed to elicit the memory of a stranger's presence that day in the neighborhood of Ling. And no one had met Edward Boyne either, alone or in company, in any of the neighboring villages or on the road across the Downs or at either of the local railway stations. The sunny English noon had swallowed him as completely as if he had gone out in the Cimmerian night. Mary, while every external means of investigation was working at its highest pressure, had ransacked her husband's papers for any trace of antecedent complications, of entanglements or obligations unknown to her, that might throw a faint ray into the darkness. But if any such had existed in the background of Boyne's life, they had disappeared as completely as the slip of paper on which the visitor had written his name. There remained no possible thread of guidance except, if it were indeed an exception, the letter which Boyne had apparently been in the act of writing when he received his mysterious summons. That letter, read and re-read by his wife and submitted by her to the police, yielded little enough for conjecture to feed on. "'I have just heard of Elwell's death, and while I suppose there is now no farther risk of trouble,' it might be safer. That was all. The risk of trouble was easily explained by the newspaper clipping which had apprised Mary of the suit, brought against her husband by one of the associates in the Blue Star Enterprise. The only new information conveyed in the letter was the fact of its showing Boyne, when he wrote it, to be still apprehensive of the results of the suit, though he had assured his wife that it had been withdrawn, and though the letter itself declared that the plaintiff was dead... It took several weeks of exhaustive cabling to fix the identity of the parvis to whom the fragmentary communication was addressed, but even after these inquiries had shown him to be a Kesha lawyer, no new facts concerning the Elwell suit were elicited. He appeared to have had no direct concern in it, but to have been conversant with the facts merely as an acquaintance, and possible intermediary, and he declared himself unable to divine with what object Boyne intended to seek his assistance. This negative information, sole fruit of the first fortnight's feverish search, was not increased by a jot during the slow weeks that followed. Mary knew that the investigations were still being carried on, but she had a vague sense of their gradually slackening, and as the actual march of time seemed to slacken. It was as though the day's flying horror-struck from the shrouded image of the one, inscrutable day gained assurance as the distance lengthened, till at last they fell back into their normal gait and so with the human imaginations at work on the dark event. No doubt it occupied them still, but week by week and hour by hour, it grew less absorbing, took up less space, was slowly but inevitably crowded out of the foreground of consciousness by the new problems perpetually bubbling up from the vaporous cauldron of human existence. Even Mary Boyne's consciousness gradually felt the same lowering of velocity, still swayed with the incessant oscillations of conjecture, but they were slower, more rhythmical in their beat. There were moments of overwhelming lassitude when, like the victim of some poison which leaves the brain clear, but holds the body motionless, she saw herself domesticated with the horror, accepting its perpetual presence as one of the fixed conditions of life. These moments lengthened into hours and days, till she passed into a phase of stolid acquiescence. She watched the familiar routine of life with the incurious eye of a savage on whom the meaningless processes of civilization make but the faintest impression. She had come to regard herself as part of the routine, spoke of the wheel, revolving with its motion. She felt almost like the furniture of the room in which she sat, an insensate object to be dusted and pushed about with the chairs and the tables. And this deepening apathy held her fast at length in spite of the urgent entreaties of friends and the usual medical recommendations of change. Her friends supposed that her refusal to move was inspired by the belief that her husband would one day return to the spot from which he had vanished, and a beautiful legend grew up about the imaginary state of waiting. But in reality, she had no such belief. The depths of anguish enclosing her were no longer lighted by flashes of hope. She was sure the point would never come back that he had gone out of her sight as completely as if death itself had waited that day on the threshold. She had even renounced one by one the various theories as to his disappearance, which had been advanced by the press, the police, and her own agonized imagination. In sheer lassitude, her mind turned from these alternatives of horror and sank back into the blank fact that he was gone. No, she would never know what had become of him. No one would ever know the house knew. The library in which she spent her long, lonely evenings knew. For it was here that the last scene had been enacted, here that the stranger had come, and spoken the word which had caused Boyne to rise and follow him. The floor she trod had felt his tread. The books on the shelves had seen his face. And there were moments when the intense consciousness of the old, dusky walls seemed about to break out into some audible revelation of their secret but the revelation never came, and she knew it would never come. Ling was not one of the garrulous old houses that betray the secrets entrusted to them. Its very legend showed that it had always been the mute accomplice, the incorruptible custodian of the mysteries it had surprised. And Mary Boyne, sitting face to face with its portentous silence, felt the futility of seeking to break it by any human means. CHAPTER Five. I don't say it wasn't straight. Yet don't say it was straight. It was business. Mary, at the words, lifted her head with a start, and looked intently at the speaker. When, half an hour before, a card with Mr. Parvis on it had been brought up to her, she had been immediately aware that the name had been part of her consciousness ever since she had read it at the head of Boyne's unfinished letter. In the library, she had found awaiting her a small, neutral, tinted man with a bald head and gold eyeglasses and It sent her a strange tremor through her to know this was the person to whom her husband's last known thought had been directed. Parvis civilly but without vain preamble, in the manner of a man who has his watch in his hand, had set forth the object of his visit. He had run over to England on business and finding himself in the neighborhood of Dorchester, had not wished to leave it without paying his respects to Mrs. Boyne. Without asking her, the occasion offered, what she meant to do about Bob Elwell's family. The words touched the spring of some obscure dread in Mary's bosom. Did her visitor, after all, know what Boyne had meant by his unfinished phrase? She asked for an elucidation of his question, and noticed at once that he seemed surprised at her continued ignorance of the subject. Was it possible that she really knew as little as she said? "'I know nothing. You must tell me,' she faltered out, and her visitor thereupon proceeded to unfold his story. It threw, even to her confused perceptions, an imperfectly initiated vision, a lurid glare in the whole hazy episode of the Blue Star Mine. Her husband had made his money in that brilliant speculation at the cost of getting ahead someone less alert to seize the chance." The victim of his ingenuity was young Robert Elwell, who had put him on to the Blue Star scheme. Parvis, at Mary's first startled cry, had thrown her a sobering glance through his impartial glasses. Bob Elwell wasn't smart enough, that's all. If he had been, he might have turned round and served Boyne the same way. It's the kind of thing that happens every day in business. I guess it's what the scientists call the survival of the fittest, said Mr. Parvis, evidently pleased with the aptness of his analogy. Mary felt a physical shrinking from the next question she tried to frame. It was as though the words on her lips had a taste that nauseated her. But then you accuse my husband of doing something dishonorable? Mr. Parvis surveyed the question dispassionately. Oh no, I don't. I don't even say it wasn't straight. He glanced up and down the long line of books, as if one of them might have supplied him with the definition he sought. "'I don't say it wasn't straight, and yet I don't say it was straight. "'It was business. "'After all, no definition in his category could be more comprehensive than that. "'Mary sat staring at him with a look of terror. "'He seemed to her like the indifferent, implacable emissary of some dark, formless power. "'But Mr. Elwell's lawyers apparently did not take your view, "'since I suppose the suit was withdrawn by their advice.' Oh yes, they knew he hadn't a leg to stand on, technically. It was when they advised him to withdraw the suit that he got desperate. You see, he'd borrowed most of the money he lost in the Blue Star, and he was up a tree. That's why he shot himself when they told him he had no show. The horror was sweeping over Mary in great, deafening waves. He shot himself? He killed himself because of that? Well, he didn't kill himself exactly. He dragged on two months before he died. Parvis admitted the statement as unemotionally as a gramophone grinding out its record. You mean that he tried to kill himself and failed and tried again? Oh, he didn't have to try again, said Parvis grimly. They sat opposite each other in silence, he swinging his eyeglass thoughtfully about his finger. She motionless, her arms stretched along her knees in an attitude of rigid tension. "'But if you knew all this,' she began at length, hardly able to force her voice above a whisper, "'how is it that when I wrote you, at the time of my husband's disappearance, you said you didn't understand his letter? Parvis received this without perceptible discomfiture. Why, I didn't understand it, strictly speaking. And it wasn't the time to talk about it if I had. The old business was settled when the suit was withdrawn.' Nothing I could have told you would have helped you to find your husband. Mary continued to scrutinize him. Then why are you telling me now? Still, Parvis did not hesitate. Well, to begin with, I supposed you knew more than you appear to. I mean about the circumstances of Elwell's death. And then people are talking of it now. The whole matter's been raked up again. And I thought if you didn't know, you ought to. She remained silent, and he continued. You see, it's only come out lately what a bad state Elwell's affairs were in. His wife's a proud woman, and she fought on as long as she could, going out to work and taking sewing at home, when she got too sick. Something with the heart, I believe? But she had his bedridden mother to look after and the children. She broke down under it and finally had to ask for help. That attracted attention to the case, and the papers took it up. And a subscription was started. Everybody out there liked Bob Elwell, and most of the prominent names in the place are down on the list, and people began to wonder why. Parvis broke off to fumble in an inner pocket. Here, he continued, here's an account of the whole thing from the Sentinel. A little sensational, of course, but I guess you'd better look it over. He held out a newspaper to Mary, who unfolded it slowly, remembering as she did so the evening when, in that same room... The perusal of a clipping from the sentinel had first shaken the depths of her security. As she opened the paper, her eyes, shrinking from the glaring headlines, Widow of Boyne's victim forced to appeal for aid, ran down the column of text to two portraits inserted in it. The first was her husband's, taken from a photograph made the year they had come to England. It was the picture of him that she liked best, the one that stood on the writing table upstairs in her bedroom. As the eyes in the photograph met hers, she felt it would be impossible to read what was said of him, and closed her lids with the sharpness of the pain. I thought if you felt disposed to put your name down, she heard Parvis continue. She opened her eyes with an effort, and they fell on the other portrait. It was that of a youngish man, slightly built, in rough clothes, with features somewhat blurred by the shadow of a projecting hat brim. Where had she seen that outline before? She stared at it confusedly, her heart hammering in her throat and ears. Then she gave a cry. This is the man! The man who came for my husband! She heard Parvis start to his feet and was dimly aware that she had slipped backward into the corner of the sofa and that he was bending above her in alarm. With an intense effort, she straightened herself and reached out for the paper which she had dropped. It's the man! I should know him from anywhere, she cried in a voice that sounded in her own ears like a scream. Harvest's voice seemed to come to her from far off, down endless fog-muffled windings. Mrs. Boyne, you're not very well. Shall I call somebody? Shall I get a glass of water? No, 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 she threw herself toward him, her hand frantically clenching the newspaper. I tell you it's the man. I know him. He spoke to me in the garden. Parvis took the journal from her, directing his glasses to the portrait. It can't be, Mrs. Boyne. It's Robert Elwell. Robert Elwell? Her white stare seemed to travel into space. Then it was Robert Elwell who came for him. Came for Boyne? The day he went away? Parvis's voice dropped as hers rose. He bent over, laying a fraternal hand on her as if to coax her gently back into her seat. Why, Elwell was dead. Don't you remember? Mary sat with her eyes fixed on the picture, unconscious of what he was saying. Don't you remember Boyne's unfinished letter to me, the one you found on his desk that day? It was written just after he'd heard of Elwell's death. She noticed an odd shake in Parvis's unemotional voice. Surely you remember that, he urged her. Yes, she remembered that was the profoundest horror of it. Elwell had died the day before her husband's disappearance, and this was Elwell's portrait, and it was the portrait of the man who had spoken to her in the garden. She lifted her head and looked slowly about the library. The library could have borne witness that it was also the portrait of the man who had come in that day to call Boyne from his unfinished letter. Through the misty surgings of her brain, she heard the faint boom of half-forgotten words words spoken by Alida Stair on the lawn of Pangborn, before Boyne and his wife had ever seen the house at Ling, or had imagined that they might one day live there. "'This was the man who spoke to me,' she repeated. She looked again at Parvis. He was trying to conceal his disturbance under what he imagined to be an expression of indulgent commiseration, but the edges of his lips were blue. "'He thinks me mad, but I'm not mad,' she reflected." and suddenly there flashed upon her a way of justifying her strange affirmation. She sat quiet, controlling the quiver of her lips, and waiting till she could trust her voice to keep its habitual level. Then she said, looking straight at Parvis, Will you answer me one question, please? When was it that Robert Eltwell tried to kill himself? When? Parvis stammered. Yes, the date. Please try to remember. She saw that he was growing still more afraid of her. I have a reason, she insisted gently. Yes, yes, only I can't remember. About two months before, I should say? I want the date, she repeated. Parvis picked up the newspaper. We might see here, he said, still humoring her. He ran his eyes down the page. Here it is. Last October, the. She caught the words from him. The twentieth, wasn't it? With a sharp look at her, he verified. Yes, the twentieth. Then you did know. I know now. Her white stare continued to travel past him. Sunday, the twentieth. That was the day he came first. Parvis's voice was almost inaudible. Came here first? Yes. You saw him twice, then? Yes, twice. She breathed it at him with dilated eyes. He came first on the 20th of October. I remember the date because it was the day we went up to Meldon Steep for the first time. She felt a faint gasp of inward laughter, at the thought that but for that she might have forgotten. Parvis continued to scrutinize her, as if trying to intercept her gaze. We saw him from the roof, she went on. He came down the Lime Avenue toward the house. He was dressed just as he is in this picture. My husband saw him first. He was frightened. He ran down ahead of me, but there was no one there. He had vanished. Elwell had vanished? Parvis faltered? Yes. Their two whispers seemed to grope for each other. I couldn't think what had happened. I see now. He tried to come then, but he wasn't dead enough. He couldn't reach us. He had to wait for two months. And then he came back again, and Ned went with him. She nodded at Parvis with the look of triumph of a child who has successfully worked out a difficult puzzle. But suddenly she lifted her hands with a desperate gesture, pressing them to her bursting temples. Oh my god. I sent him to Ned. I told him where to go. I sent him to this room, she screamed out. She felt the walls of the room rush toward her, like inward, falling ruins. And she heard Parvis a long way off, as if through the ruins, crying to her and struggling to get at her. But she was numb to his touch. She did not know what he was saying. Through the tumult she heard but one clear note, the voice of Alita Stair speaking on the lawn at Pangbourne. You won't know till afterward, it said. You won't know till long, long afterward. Afterward by Edith Wharton First published 1910 in Century Magazine whose final issue was published in 1930. I'd like to thank our listeners who have reached out with useful feedback already. I'm glad you're out there enjoying these productions. If you like the podcast, if you hate the podcast, or if you're living in a liminal state where nothing makes sense if you have any strong opinions, it doesn't matter. We love and we need your feedback. Feel free to tweet about the show and we will mention you by name on a future episode. Making notches for you, however small, on the long stick of posterity. May you not be beaten with it. And you can reach me on Twitter, at HP Knightley. As always, our address on the web is nighttimestories.org and subscribe in iTunes or at our feed at nighttimestories.org slash feed. Nighttime Stories is released by Thucelai Media under a Creative Commons Attribution Alike 4.0 international license. Next week, a new story, an old story. Take care. And remember, there is no truth here.